This is episode eight of the Think Data podcast in partnership with DataWorks. And I'm really pleased to welcome Alan Bockman to the show. Alan has a ton of experience working in artificial intelligence, which has seen him build product teams for the likes of Genpact, Microsoft, and most recently Google, where he was the head of privacy and compliance for YouTube ads. Hugely uh, grateful for you to put up your time to come onto the podcast today, Alan. And uh, if you can give us a bit of a bit of a background to your journey to Google, because I know you've come from that kind of non-classic career in finance initially, which I'm sure will be really interesting to people to hear. Uh, thanks for having me on the show, Alex. Uh, really pleased to be here. Um, yeah, let me give you kind of a quick overview. Uh, I've had I've had an unusual journey. Um, I uh, I co-founded and sold uh, a software company to Thomson Reuters. That was uh, that was kind of my first gig right out of school. I was very fortunate to connect with some um, some partners that were uh, really talented and uh, in the right place at the right time. Um, after that, I uh, went to business school and spent most of my career after business school in uh, consulting and uh, finance. Uh, the peak of my career in finance was uh, managing a $50 million hedge fund portfolio. It was uh, equity long short. And um, uh, the peak of my consulting career was uh, building an AI consulting practice at a, a company called Genpact, which is a large consulting company. And uh, we went from you know, from $0 to a billion dollars there in, in about four years, uh, catering to asset managers. Um, and uh, I, uh, I spent the last uh, few years in big tech. Uh, so uh, Microsoft recruited me out of, uh, out of uh, Genpact and I joined to uh, help them uh, with the Azure ML Studio product, which is the cloud ML ops product, uh, mm-hmm. as well as the PyTorch ecosystem, where I basically helped support the model, the, the people that were training the largest, uh, the largest ML models in, in the world. So that's, you know, uh, OpenAI was a customer of mine, um, Facebook Research, Microsoft Megatron, and a few others like that. Um, and uh, the last year I spent at uh, Google in YouTube ads, uh, where I did uh, privacy, transparency, and uh, and compliance. Um, so uh, yeah, did, did, did a bit of everything. Yeah, it's a fantastic journey, and I think you know we talked off air about this, but the whole kind of premise behind the kind of the podcast was to provide a platform and kind of a point of reference for people that may be not following that classic route from maybe an education standpoint or from that kind of, you know, to get into analytics, you need to have X, Y, Z, and you need to follow this path. But I suppose you're probably living proof that that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. And was that kind of uh, your your kind of journey to Google and, you know, this journey through Genpact, Microsoft and AI, was that something which you kind of purposely followed or was this just you found yourself in this and found you really enjoyed it? I would say uh, my career had two inflection points where I made the switch from, you know, from sort of non-data and non-analytics into um, my focus is ML and AI, but you know, you call it a data a data product manager. I think it's it's very much the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first was, you know, right after business school, um, I studied I studied finance in business school, and um, uh, when I graduated, it was uh, 
it was a time not unlike today where, you know, it was, it was 2002. It was right after the great financial crisis, which, you know, uh, maybe your, your oldest uh, listeners might remember. And uh, it was, you know, there was just a ton of layoffs or a lot of people looking, not a lot of people hiring. It was, it was difficult situation, but I was very fortunate to land with this consulting company and they were in two lines of business. One was strategy consulting, which is what they hired me to do. And the other was uh, what they called data mining back then. Now we might call it machine learning or analytics or, you know, but it's extracting value from data. And it turned out that even though they recruited me for the first business, they were actually much better at the other business. Mm. Um, and so I made the switch, uh, you know, within that company, basically started by taking the training and then uh, was placed on a couple of analytics engagements. And um, it was what was really interesting to me was how management consulting was switching from being sort of very top down starting from the market, the trend, and figuring out the, the advice to being bottom up, starting with the data and figuring out, you know, figuring out the insights from there. And I think that it's continuing to change in that direction. And um, uh, so when, um, you know, when I moved on from that company, uh, I was able to do some consulting on my own and it was very much sort of management consulting bottom up. Um, that was, um, that was the first inflection point. The second inflection point came when I was at Genpact. And um, this was, um, you know, this was uh, 2016 to 2020. And the challenge there was really different. I, I mean, I was sort of in, in data science and AI and, and analytics, but suddenly everybody else was too. <laughs> so I don't know if you've ever had that experience, Alex, but like, it seemed to me like um, I was in this casting call and I'm showing up to read for, for a part and the hall is full of other people that look just like me. They wear the same glasses, they have the same hair, they have the same voice and they're putting on different accents and they're all up for the same role that I am. They're all claiming to be me <laughs> or, or they're all claiming to have the skill set of, you know, I'm a data scientist and I'm a data scientist. And so it was really, really challenging to stand out. And I was trying to build a consulting practice. I was trying to go out to, you know, to uh, sell engagements. And I was up against this multitude of people that, you know, where let's just be charitable and say that the skill set was variable. Some of them were really good. Uh, many of them were not. And I was looking for some way to set myself apart. And what really helped me, Alex, was discovering Kaggle. So Kaggle, if you're, you know, if you've heard about it, it's a, it's a data science competition site. It's owned by Google. Uh, there are something like, you know, maybe 5 million members and people. So it's arguably the largest data science community in the world. And people compete in these uh, data science competitions where some company, a third party will provide a data set. Kaggle will host a competition. People will try to build models to predict a thing. And then there will be some holdout data and the models all get evaluated on this holdout data that is not available to participants. And the model that can predict the holdout data the best wins the first prize. So all of the grading is done entirely by computer. There's no subjectivity at all. And it's all about sort of building, you know, it's all about building a model that generalizes the data that you haven't seen yet, which is really what we're all trying to do in, in, in ML. And, um, 
So, so I joined a couple of these competitions. Uh, I was very fortunate to, again, connect with some really smart people on Kaggle, joined their team. Uh, they joined my team and we won a couple of medals. And then uh, I earned, uh, in Kaggle they have ranking systems. So I, I got ranked somewhere somewhere in the top 1% or half a percent of the, of the competitors. Then I got a, a title there. And then I was able to actually have a credential that all the other people in the hall and the casting poll couldn't have, right? So awesome. I could say like, here's something objective, it's quantifiable, you can verify, you can go to the Kaggle website and see it, you can look me up. And so when I tell you that I know about machine learning and AI, uh, this is what I mean. And you can ask all the other people in the hall what they mean. Um, and, and, it, and it really helped, it opened a lot of doors and it eventually got me sort of into Microsoft. Yeah, that's super interesting actually. It's, uh, I talked on the previous episodes with people about what steps people can take to kind of stand out. You're the first one who's actually talked about kind of the Kaggle element or actually showcasing the technical skills. A lot of it is around kind of branding and being proactive, which I, which I completely agree to. Uh, however, the fact you've taken that step and as you rightly said, could you know showcase your skills and say, look, the proof is here. And I suppose beyond that, when you started to look at Kaggle and you started to look at the kind of case studies and play around with the tool, did you find yourself becoming more excited and more interested about that kind of world you were kind of, uh, I suppose, interacting with? I was, Alex. And, and I want to tell you that at first I was really intimidated by it because, I mean, I, you know, I, I, everybody thinks that they're good at some things, right? Um, I thought that I was pretty good at this thing, but I never really competed on a global scale. That was new to me. And when I started to prepare for it, I started by just looking at Kaggle, doing a little bit of research, reading some of the write-ups of the past winners. And they seemed to me to be on this pedestal that I could never attain. Um, I, just the level of you know complexity and knowledge, like how could I ever, how could I ever get there? Um, so it was, it was really like I, I was agonizing for weeks before entering the first contest because like, you know, I have this voice that would say it's just going to be a waste of time. Yeah. Do you know, uh, look at all these people, they have PhDs, they have multiple PhDs. They've already won all these things. Like what, you know, what do you have to add to this? And then, um, <clears throat> what happened was there was this contest that came out that was, um, in an area where I had some domain expertise. It was in credit risk modeling. So I had a little bit of, uh, finance skill set, domain expertise that I could bring to this. And I was thinking, well, it's kind of now or never, right? There's not going to be another <laughs> contest that brings all these elements together. So, you know, if you're going to do it, this is the time to do it. And I just started to, I just started to play around with it. I said, like, let me just start with the simplest solution that I could think of. And, you know, and then it landed me like at the bottom of the leaderboard. <laughs> so <laughs> at the wrong end of it. And I said, well, I could do a little bit better than that. And then it just, it just kind of, it, it started rolling from there. And you're right. I did discover that I just, I just really enjoyed it. And I should mm -hmm. tell you that, um, for somebody who's thinking that they will do this thing just, just to prove themselves, you, you can't get there if you don't like it. You, yeah. you can get there if you don't know much. Mm -hmm. You can get there if you're not skilled, but you cannot get there if you don't enjoy it. Uh, so I think if you're if you're curious and you like to learn this kind of stuff and you're starting from a very kind of low level of knowledge, I would absolutely recommend this path to to your to your ambitious 
uh, listeners. But if you're thinking that you're already there and you just need like uh, to check the box, it's it's going to be really really hard. It's hard and unrewarding uh, if you're you know if you're kind of just doing it to to prove something to somebody else. So uh, for me, like I started I started with the wrong intention, and yeah. I got in there and I found that uh, I really just I, I just loved it. I I loved trying one more thing, tweaking it another way, looking for another solution, uh, learning what uh, my competitors were doing, and it just snowballed from there. Yeah, no, I think that's fascinating. It's uh, yeah, I hope people listening to this can kind of take the chance to look at Kaggle and other. There's obviously other platforms similar, but they, they definitely are the largest out there. And I, I suppose honing in on that kind of data, obviously AI product journey you've been on, we've talked off air about how how much interest and appetite there is for dedicated data or AI product owners now. Um, And a lot of organizations um, are realizing the benefits of having that kind of dedicated kind of product owner, product manager, whatever we want to call it. But when companies are looking to establish that data product function, in your opinion, when is the right time or equally when's the wrong time? Because, you know, we are getting these companies who, you know, we are in an unusual market. People are making noise about hiring their, their first data product person, but maybe they don't have the infrastructure network or support to realize that ROI really quickly. But in your experience, when should they make that hire and establish that function? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. So I think, you know, let, let's go a couple of steps back. I think that the reason that there's so much interest in the product function and the data product function is that we've had something like, 10 or 15 years of a handful of companies that are product driven that have risen to completely dominate the tech industry. And mm. I don't think that like we kind of take it for granted now, but it didn't used to be the case. Like if you think back to gosh, I don't know, uh, the the 90s or or the 80s or, or the 70s, I mean, there was still a tech industry, but it wasn't so much product driven. It was really more engineer driven. And you kind of had this visionary engineer you can picture, you know, picture Steve Wozniak or, you know, picture yeah. Hewlett and Packard, right? So uh, you have builders, like the people that are putting the chips together that, that have the, the engineering degrees. And this is really the way that the, the organizations were structured. And it turned out that uh, you really needed Steve Jobs for every Steve, you know, for every Wozniak. And so, you know, you, or, or you really need sort of a, you know, a product driven culture where, um, the product organization is responsible for product market fit and yeah. for you know getting business results. And the technology organization is creating the technical innovation, figuring out you know how to deliver, what is possible to deliver, et cetera. And they work hand in glove. One can't work without the other. But the a product organization can be really helpful in um, in product discovery and kind of getting to you know, getting all of the mistakes out of the way quickly so that you can hone in on what it is that your market, that your users really want and make sure that there are enough of them to support your product. And it can really, it can save up some very, very expensive mistakes where you yeah. know, we're sort of the, you know, absent the product organization or in, a, in, an organi- in an organization that is not product driven, that is engineering driven, there is this, um, ineffable tendency to build the cool thing, build the thing that, you know, kind of prove out, solve the hard problem. Um, yeah. 
And sometimes it's, uh, you know, it, it's a solution in search of a problem. You know, you, you build it and they don't come. Uh, you, you invest a lot of money, but it's, you know, it's coming. It's kind of like uh, it's the wrong bullseye. Uh, and there, there are actually not enough customers there. And, um, you know, by, by now you've spent a few million dollars or more than a few and, you know, and, and it becomes a sunk cost. So to your question of like, when should an organization, uh, create, um, or, or hire, hire a product manager? I think as soon as they want to be a product organization, they need, you know, mm. they need a product function. So if it's a startup, I think that startups that are product oriented, um, can scale a lot more. That's why, you know, venture capital, uh, typically invests in, in product driven organizations. If we're talking about a company that is, you know, has not traditionally been product oriented, but they're, you know, they're considering, let's say, you know, creating a product or coming out uh, a piece of their technology as a product, that would be a pretty good time to do it as well. Interesting. I think it's um, where we've seen it. You obviously said earlier in terms of where it's been good when they're early enough in that journey where they are defining that journey, um, defining that roadmap, um, bringing all the use cases, doing the market research. But equally, from a technical standpoint, they which we're seeing more and more now, um, equally your background lends itself really well to that is that gravitas and, and technical know-how um, to show if it is possible. Because I'm guessing on your point, it's all well and good saying this is the kind of goal, this is the product we want to deliver. But if the technology or infrastructure or team around can't possibly deliver that, then it's better that you have that technical mind in that product role now, I'm guessing. Sure. Um, and, you know, it's uh, it, it's um, it, it's not always an obvious answer. Like, um, you know, when, when I joined Google, I joined, I joined the YouTube ads organization. They grew to, you know, something like, I don't know, two, 300 engineers without ever having product people for like 20 years. And the wow. business was just like, it, it was such a cash gusher. It was such an amazing business. It kind of grew, you know, I won't say grew on its own, but I would say all you had to do was the technically correct thing. And that was enough to make the business grow. And that was true up until, let's say, two years ago, uh, maybe three years ago, when you know, the the momentum started to peter out. And now it's not enough to just do the technically correct thing, the technically difficult thing. It's not it's not enough to just pay off your technical debt and be a smart technologist. You actually need some will and intentionality around your direction. Mm. And there are some, you know, there, there are a lot of um, uninspiring product choices and it takes some expertise to kind of pick the right one. So... Uh, Google realized this and started to actually create uh, create a product organization for uh, for YouTube ads. Interesting. And, and on the we've not asked the question yet, but in terms of the privacy and compliance piece for YouTube ads, what did that mean in practice from a from an AI, from an ML, from from a data standpoint? What did that mean in terms of what your remit was there? Yeah. So this was a sort of. Um, it was a relatively new field, but it's, it's, it's really exploding. So as you can imagine, there are, you know, there are a lot of new regulations that are targeting dominant players in tech. Um, so Google, Microsoft, uh, Netflix, Amazon, uh, Facebook, et cetera. And uh, a lot of those rules are coming from the European Commission, actually, yeah. uh, but also from many other uh, jurisdictions. And uh, they sort of, you know, they started with cheap, 
you know, GDPR a few years ago, and that was sort of a, a shot across the bow. It was a pretty significant regulation that required um, a lot of businesses, but especially the largest players, to rearchitect a lot of their business processes. So you can imagine that it's a you know it's a regulation that has you know, on its face very simple rules uh, about you know about user data, but mm -hmm. in order to be fully compliant, you actually have to think through your entire data pipeline from a technical perspective and data practices, what data you collect, how you store it, what data do you share, and you sort of have to subject each of those to a checklist, to some critical thinking. And at the end, you may discover that you can't do some things that you used to be able to do, and you have to build your data pipeline in a different way than you used to. So it requires a lot of investment. So that was one rule, and then it was quiet for quiet for a few years, quote unquote, but now there are so many new rules that are coming out. There's the Digital Markets Act, uh, which yeah. is going to go into effect in, I think, uh, January of 2024. There's the Digital Services Act from the EC, which is going to effect in, uh, I think, July. Um, and there are many, many others. And each of these rules require really fundamental re-architecture of a lot of businesses. For example, in... Um, in the Digital Markets Act, kind of the key provision that applies to, you know, to really uh, all of the top players is you can't share data across two businesses without user consent. So, you know, if there's a user on um, search and there's a user on uh, YouTube, um, you can't use pieces of their profile from both sides to personalize, let's say, their next video on YouTube unless the user says that's okay. Uh, and uh, same thing with, let's say, you know, you're an Amazon Alexa user as well as a, a shopping user. So yep. you, can't, you can't share that data. So that means that all of the data pipelines uh, that until now sort of use all the data that's available, they now have to be sensitive to this rule. So you need to know which business did the data come from and at what steps in the pipeline am I merging data across businesses? And within those steps, you need to build logic to check whether... This, merge, this merger is consented to by the user or not. Users can grant consent and revoke it. Uh, there are issues around retroactive consent or you know, what happens if the user is, 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 hasn't been asked yet. You assume yeah. consent or non-consent. Uh, so there are, there are sort of all these things that you have to do that have a lot of implications to the data ecosystem. And all of these things can be solved by smart technologists. But yeah. if you want to solve them in a way that satisfies the regulators and satisfies the users and minimizes impact on the revenue, then you need to bring some business and market considerations to the compliance decision. And that's where you sort of need some product input. Fascinating. Yeah, it's a, and we've seen a huge amount of increase in appetite on the trust and safety side as well. And you know, compliance, privacy, trust and safety. I think that it, you know, either it's a regulation or there's a, a case that are a use case that kind of dictates what the rest of these companies have to subsequently do. And it's amazing that the amount of internal change and probably hiring and realignment has to happen for that one policy that's released. And you're right, the EU unfortunately has been the driver behind a lot of this in GDPR. I was there when it got released and certainly from a recruitment standpoint, albeit far smaller than YouTube, it was it was a monumental headache just trying to get everything, all the policies correct. And, sure. you know, I think... Um, we always have a lot of people listening that are looking to make a switch uh, from one area to another with analytics. And 
data product is obviously uh, gathering a lot of attention at the moment. Um, So you've obviously come from a very different background. You made that transition. You did the Kaggle. You you were proactive in that journey. But for other people that maybe maybe more ML, data science role now, but actually like the look of product ownership, product management, what advice and guidance can you provide those who are maybe looking to make that switch? Yeah, so it's a really good question. Um, I can suggest a couple of resources. Yeah. And I can suggest a couple of actions. So on the resources side, you know, um, I don't have... I don't have the links top of mind, but I can send them to you after the show. Yeah, we'll tag them uh, in the show afterwards. Yeah, yeah. But there there are a bunch of courses uh, that help people through product manager interviews. Um, I think one of them is called Product School or something like that. Again, I'll send you the links. But they basically prepare people to go through the, um, you know, the interview process that really like a lot of the fangs follow. And I think that those courses... Are, would be would be a good stop for for listeners that are looking to switch into product. Even if, like for starters, they will just um, illustrate the types of things that a product manager does at these companies. So, uh, so if if one of your listeners is looking to switch, they could, you know, they can be a little bit more informed. They can get a preview and mm-hmm. uh, a tasting before before they make the commitment. Yep. And if they do make the commitment, if they do get the interview, then those courses will certainly uh, help their odds. The good news is that. Um, for the top, let's say, top 20 companies, the product management job is pretty much the same. Uh, there's a little bit of domain expertise. There's a wrinkle here about, you know, you know, maybe NVIDIA is more focused on chips and Microsoft is focused on office software. But really, I would say the core of the job is about 80% the same. And, and the hiring process is, you know, is really 80% the same as well. The types of questions that you get asked are, you know, quite overlapping for a lot of these big companies. So, that gives scope for these kind of courses to target that overlap. And if you're able to master um, those kind of questions, I think you'll do well. Um, there are a couple of books that I can recommend. Um, uh, it's, they're called um, Cracking the PM Interview and Cracking the PM Career. Uh, those are two, uh, and I, again, I can send you some links to those. Uh, they're excellent. Uh, they just give you a, a really good overview of what a product product manager does, um, what they're supposed to do, how to do it, how to do it well, how to do it excellently. <laughs> yeah. um, and kind of the difference, the difference between good and excellent is, uh, you know, is, is covered in detail. Um, there is, there's a book called, uh, called Inspired, which, which talks about kind of the, 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 the birth of the product driven organization, how it evolved, what it's supposed to look like, um, that's a that's a really good book. Um, it's written by Marty Kagan. Um, so those are those are resources. In terms yeah. of actions, if you are an engineer and you're interested in um, in potentially switching into product, I would really encourage you to create a product. So this is so this is like uh, it may sound a little bit unusual, and maybe you feel like it would be it would be a, a big ask, but for for a lot of product managers that want to create a product, usually the barrier is that we don't have the um, engineering skills to actually to actually stand it up, to actually create the base of it, the proof of concept or the minimum viable product. And so we need to partner with an engineer because the engineer builds it. Uh, we, ha- we may have some idea about what it should be, but we don't have the skills to actually to actually put it up. Like we don't have the Lego pieces. Yeah. Uh, but if you are an engineer, you have, by definition, you have those Lego pieces. You know how to 
write code, you know how to create products. And what you're missing is, you know, potentially the, you know, what bullseye to aim for. And so you can demonstrate your interest um, and your productivity by identifying a niche for a product and actually yeah. creating a minimal, a minimum, minimum viable product for that niche. It does not have to make a lot of money. It may not even have to make any money, but you would be demonstrating that you are able to think like a product manager and execute. Uh, and I think that that will set you apart from uh, multitudes. The superb advice. And as I, we were, as, as I alluded to earlier, we will obviously tag some of those references um, when we when we post the actual link to the show. And uh, I think when you've obviously worked with large organisations, two of the largest, and we were obviously in, in you know in recent times, obviously unfortunately there has been huge churn and layoffs in in said companies. However, certainly in the, the run up to that, the four or five years prior. To what we're seeing now there was a real kind of excitement and appetite for people breaking into those fangs and breaking into those large tech players but as somebody's worked in them what considerations should people and candidates weigh up before deciding whether to join one of the larger tech players out there because being frank we've heard feedback it's it's not for everyone it's not your your home in terms of where you're going to end up it's a great learning journey but in obviously in current times it could be seen as a more calculated risk, but what, what, what advice would you and consideration should they take before deciding? Um, I, I'm a big fan of of the large of banks, the large tech players. Um, so I think as a career choice for a really for a lot of not for all candidates, but for a lot of candidates, I think I think it's a it's a great move. I, I benefited greatly from working at Microsoft and Google. Um, so I'll go through. I'll go through some of the pros, I'll go through some of the cons, and yeah. then let me go through some tactical steps uh, that, that, that you could take to, to improve your odds. Uh, so on the pro side, um, it's, just a, it, it, it's just a really accelerated learning journey. So you know, you're typically um, shoulder to shoulder with uh, people who are very, very good at what they do. Mm. Uh, people who've uh, people who've sold companies, people who are excellent uh, people developers, managers, um, people who are excellent communicators, and there's just there's just a lot to learn from from being around people like that. Um, I certainly learned a lot from from my managers, my coworkers. Um, the pace of um, work and communication and challenges is very quick. I found that I had to step up to uh, to meet it. It was a challenge for me, and um, and I feel like so much more capable uh, for, for having done it than than I was a few years ago. And so, as as a sort of method of career acceleration, I really recommend it. Um, certainly, the the money is nothing to sneeze at. Um, <laughs> well documented. Yeah. That's right, and. Um, you know, and, and the brand that you get on your resume is, uh, mm. is helpful. Uh, there are some cons. So I would say, you know, we've, we've been, you know, we've been in, in this like 10 or 15 or maybe 20 year period of really just a few tech companies completely dominating industries and dominating yeah. ever more industries, kind of reaching into an adjacent industry and immediately taking 
a leadership position. And um, the natural tendency is to assume that that kind of trend will kind of continue um, mm. because that's what we always assume, right? We always assume the future will be like the past, but I'm not sure that it will be. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know how things are going to turn out, but there are definitely signs that the momentum is plateauing, not just for one company, uh, but for, for many of these companies. Um, it could be a function of, you know, regulation, which, which I have a front row seat to, but it could also be a function of just reaching, you know, the, uh, saturation for, for a lot of these markets. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. It's, it's complicated and I won't, I won't pretend to kind of explain the world, but, but I do, I definitely do see a, a number of these signs that the, that the rocket has maybe reached its apex. Yeah. Um, so, so it's not, uh, it's not a slam dunk and you can't expect to continue to grow 20, 30% a year in terms of headcount, in terms of, you know, uh, total revenue for a company. And, and, uh, and that means that, um, that there are some downsides. Uh, but even so, I think considering the pros and cons, uh, I, I think I still think that uh, big techs are are an amazing place to be. Um, in terms of improving, like the tactics of of actually getting in there, what what has really helped me was um, was building relationships with people that are that are working at these companies. Uh, it's not the easiest thing. Uh, yeah. Some of them tend to be a little bit insular and uh, kind of a click. But uh, you know, bit by bit, you find people that are interested in the same thing that you are and you reach out and you offer some value and you ask for advice and it takes, you know, it takes months and it takes a couple of years. And before you know it, you have, you know, you have a network and hopefully these are people that you enjoy communicating with, that you learn something from. And when the time comes, uh, they can, they can help you make an introduction and, um, and it, it you know, it, it works. Yeah, it's the power of networking, isn't it? I think uh, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure people will really appreciate the openness and honesty here because, the, you know, it's not just a, a bed of roses. And it, it, going back to your point about where where these companies have plateaued, it's interesting it's happened simultaneously or almost simultaneously from, a, from the last two, three years that has been a market that I've never witnessed. And actually, maybe we are at a point we should have been previously but the drop off from where we were maybe this time last year has been been deemed so dramatic that that's what subsequently caused so many shockwaves in the in the other companies so yeah we'll be fascinating to see how the rest of this pans out and i we really i've been really looking forward to going asking this question because you're in the trenches so much in AI, ai and ml and with their obviously release of chat gbt4 yesterday and kind of in the last three four months how the world is suddenly front and center on AI and everyone's sunny knows even my even my mum knows what it is you know it's it, asking me questions about it but what is your where do you see AI and machine learning heading from a product perspective what's your if you had that crystal ball you kind of mentioned earlier what, what would it what would it say to you that's such a fun question Alex I mean I uh I guess the the fun part about our industry is every now and then we get this new toy and we don't know where it's going to go but right. we could, we could see that it's going to enable so much so um when i was watching i was watching the the chatgpt4 demo live when when it happened yesterday and uh thanks to a few friends that, that alerted me to it and um you know i, I was hearing some fire music <laughs> like in my ear in my in my inner voice because 
that first of all, that was an incredible demo. It just yep. as I think for for people who are looking to get into product, you will need to do demos. You will need to win over hearts and minds, and you could do a lot worse than to just look at the way that that live stream that um, that OpenAI put together as demo mechanics. You could just see yep. the way that it was. Think about how it was crafted. Think about the points they were trying to get across. What was the outcome they were trying to achieve? How did they go about it? Uh, I think that is, um, it's a masterclass in giving demos. Amazing. Uh, not, not everything went perfectly either. Uh, like mm -hmm. See, like it wasn't super polished. It wasn't so graphically rich. It wasn't high production values. But in terms of the core job of, you know, of demonstrating, of of, get, of convincing people, um, it's it, it's it's a great thing to watch. And then beyond that, so I think you know where where will AI go? So I think there's there's going to be a lot more competition for ChatGPT. Um, I know of several teams that are uh, that are uh, about to hit the market and uh, and will hit the market you know in the next three four months six months. So I think we're you know whereas now it seems like OpenAI has the market cornered. Mm. Um, I don't think that'll be the case for for long. Um, when those other models at the market, we will find out just how much of a lead OpenAI actually has. Like, it's really a question. They may have a long lead, but uh, a lot of uh, a lot of friends that I have are telling me that they have even better stuff in the lab. But we wow. can't we can't verify it until it comes out, and you know, and they make their demo, and you could see, you know, so so they 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 haven't kind of arrived at the race yet, but they will soon. So there's going to be a lot more competition. When there's more competition. For those large language models, I think it means they will become cheaper for the yeah. user, uh, more available. Um, they may become ad supported, uh, mm. but but it's 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 going to be it's going to be very good. Like they, they will be ubiquitous. And then the question is really, what will they be used for? Will la large language models be a solution in search of a problem or not? Because so is this one thing to sort of have a lot of queries for entertainment purposes, which is really what a lot of us are are using them for right now. But we haven't, you know, we haven't plugged it into like the killer app hasn't been developed yet uh, mm. for for you know for large language models. But it seems my gosh, I mean uh it, it there's there's no way that it's not going to we're we're gonna have so many I think we're gonna have so many uses for this thing. Um so there are you know dozens, hundreds of startups that are that are trying uh, and they're all sort of working in the in the application layer or putting a user interface on top of um, on top of a large language model, maybe training it for a particular domain. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so I I see there will be this sort of Cambrian explosion where you have evolution going every which way, and most of it is not going to work, no. and some of it will work, uh, and some of it will be amazing. There'll be like all the range of outcomes. So you know, get ready for a lot of silly ideas <laughs> and uh and and a few ideas that kind of that that fly under the radar but but become become ubiquitous um and um it, you know we've kind of seen this movie before right uh, i think mm -hmm. that when when the internet got started when the web got started um we saw very similar things where you know some people uh seemed like raving lunatics when they said that it'll change everything it'll be everywhere uh, I mean, I, I remember I, I was pretty young at that time, and uh, I was trying to get that message out there, and I got a lot of skepticism. Um, 
And it took a lot longer than anybody imagined, right? Uh, you know, it took, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years before it reached some sort of ubiquity, but it really did change a lot of things. And there were a lot of bad ideas along the way. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, pets.com and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, you know, so I think, um, I think we'll see, we'll see a lot of, a lot of the same stuff. I think we'll see it faster this time. The pace of change yeah. is going to be faster. A lot more people have sort of access to, uh, to the tools where uh, we're a lot more globalized uh, as a society. So I think, uh, you know, I think um, that's, that's what I would expect. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh kind of point in time isn't it and i think uh use the right way for good you know it's it's a certainly powerful powerful tool obviously on the on the flip side there's the kind of trepidation and nervousness around what these applications tools or products could do um but i think the reality of it is we're a really exciting kind of moment in time and yeah i can't thank you enough you know i could i could literally speak for hours about this with you i think you've uh, been a fantastic kind of guest really open um, yeah, thanks so much for your time, and it's been been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Alex.